Your window on the city, Cambridge 105. Cambridge Minds with Trevor Dan. I wonder if you remember that news story a few weeks ago about a Cambridge psychologist who'd reportedly developed a vaccine to inoculate people against fake news. It all sounded a bit far-fetched, but it went, as they say, viral, and it made Dr Sander van der Linden into a social media celebrity. Well, for this episode of Cambridge Minds, I went to Churchill College to meet him. It was a daunting intellectual prospect. Last year, he was named as one of the 30 top thinkers under 30 in the world. And he's arrived in Cambridge after a glittering academic career that's already taken in Princeton, Yale and the LSE. But Sander van der Linden turned out to be an engaging and entertaining chap as we discussed fake news, climate change, narcissism, how humans make decisions and the ice bucket challenge. Sander, let's start with what made you newsworthy, your story about a so-called vaccine against uh, misinformation and fake news. Was it true? It was fairly ironic, actually, because some of the news coverage, which went viral in itself, had some slight inaccuracies in there, as there tends to be in, in news reports. And so there was some irony to it that um, the psychological vaccine actually went, went viral. But it wasn't fake news, at least to the best of my knowledge. <laughs> OK, so what is the Cambridge Social Decision-Making Lab? So when I arrived at Cambridge, I basically wanted to establish a group who studies people that study how other people make decisions, particularly in terms of how those decisions affect other people and society. And so that's the social aspect. And so there's lots of different ways to study how people form judgments, opinions, and, and make decisions. But my interest specifically is in how it relates to other people. And so we might think of things like big social dilemmas where you know, if we if we don't cooperate or if we do what's in our best in our own interest, um, you know, that's that's the easy way to go. But if everyone does that, then there is really no collective benefit. And so there's lots of situations like that. Um, think of climate change or vaccines or charity or inequality and all these type of things. That there is this fine balance between what's good for for us and what's good for the collective and how people think and make decisions about that. Um, that's that's what I'm interested in. There was that phrase, wasn't there? Is it Orwell called it groupthink? Are we all, in a sense, susceptible to that? Well, I think when it comes to psychological phenomena, it's tricky to say that everyone is equally susceptible to these type of things. But I think groupthink is a fairly well-established concept in that when you put a bunch of people in a room together, they t they tend to drift towards, um, you know, if there's, you know, one individual that's particularly loud and aggressive, um, then that can sort of take over the, the general opinion of the group and that kind of defies the, the more sort of diversity of opinions and, and consensus building that, that makes for good decisions. And so groupthink is, is, well, most people tend to think of groupthink as something undesirable. Does that work, though, on a sort of global or national level, do you think, that perhaps we as individuals sort of go along with something because it feels comfortable to be part of a majority. 
Yes, no, I think that's very true. Um, I, I, it's slightly different from groupthink in the sense that there's, there's generally two types of norms that affect people, and one we call descriptive norms, and that's simply information about what other people are doing. And so we, we tend to pay a lot of attention to what our neighbors are doing and our friends are doing because it's important to us. Um, the other form is a what we call prescriptive norms or ideas, opinions from other people that suggest how we ought to or should be behaving. And those tend to be a bit more direct. You know, if someone you care about tells you that you ought to be doing something, you take that into consideration. And I think that people do pay close attention to, to norms. Um, when it comes to big societal issues, however, I think some of these norms are, are not very well pronounced. Um, and so the extent to which they influence people um, isn't always clear. So, for example, you know, if we take the environment and we want people to you know, take care of the planet, um, it's very uncommon that your friends and family are judging you harshly uh, for not recycling and these type of things. And so, um, you know, those norms tend to be not very well pronounced, and so they don't influence people. So lots of research shows that norms influence people when they're focal for us and salient and, and activated. But a lot of the time, you know, norms about good behavior aren't, or what, you know, as society we think is good behavior aren't activated, and so they don't really influence us, and we simply end up doing what it is that we want to do rather than think about um, what's good for the group. So w coming back to your original question, I actually think that people often don't think about what's good for the group um, because we tend to think of, you know, ourselves and, and our our local groups, but not so much in terms, not so much society in terms of a group that we're all part of and, and need to think about. I think people think more about the types of groups that they interact with on an everyday basis. Is that why we all get exercised about the litter outside our house or the bin collection day or those small things, but we can't get exercised about climate change? Yeah, that's right. And so when it comes to littering and, and trash and these type of things, they're, they're visible. And so, you know, if we notice a lot of trash on the street, people start thinking, hey, maybe we should do something about this because it's clearly affecting the quality and, and health situation um, of our neighborhood. Where climate change is so psychologically distant and abstract that in, indeed that doesn't really happen for people. And there's other issues like that as well. And so, it, you know, it depends on, on, the, on the type of issue that we're talking about. But, but that's right. Okay, so let's take climate change, because you've made a, a, a very deep study of, of this in your field. How could we persuade more people, more sceptical people, or more just, I don't know, people who deliberately go against it because they think they can make some money? How, how, do, we, how do we make people who are disbelievers believe in it? You know, I think that's a, a really difficult question. Uh, initially, I, I was interested in climate change because it sort of represents the ultimate uh, social dilemma, because it's such a psychologically distant risk for people. Um, we don't really have information about what other people are doing about the issue. Uh, you know, we think that's going to happen in the future to other people. And so psychologically, it seems a recipe for a cause that people would not care about. And so I was very interested in this. Um, now, people that are motivated to deny climate science or feel that the solutions to climate change conflict with their worldview about uh, what's good for the economy and these type of things. I, I like to think of this as a spectrum where we have, on one end of the spectrum, we have this idea of selective attention where we selectively seek out information that conforms to what we already believe. And that's fairly innocent. Most people tend to do that. And then there's confirmation bias and, and actually giving more weight to and processing in a more fluent way the types of arguments that resonate with what we already believe. 
Um, then there's motivated reasoning. That's when we go beyond that and actually start rejecting evidence that conflicts with our values and worldviews. And then on the, on, the, on the far end of the spectrum, we have conspiracy theories and worldviews that are impenetrable and people that are so motivated to spread myths and disinformation about the topic that it becomes uh, um, you know, almost impossible to have a reasonable conversation. And that sort of links to the study we did where you know, we're wondering if we could inoculate the general public against misinformation and disinformation. And so I think when, we, when you try to talk about you know, how can we reason with people who don't believe in science or who don't believe in, in climate change, I think for the general public and people that are not so much aware of the issue or that have doubts, I think there's a lot of potential to, to reason with people. Um, you know, some people are going to be immune to influence because they have a specific agenda and, you know, that's, that's simply going to be um, um, impossible. But in our research, one topic that we found that resonates with a lot of people is this idea of consensus. And so because people pay attention to norms, because people like to see agreement, uh, agreement tends to neutralize conflict. And so when we highlight agreement, that tends to neutralize people's perceptions of polarization and conflict, particularly when it's about your own group or a group um, that is seen as a, as a neutral outgroup. So for example, if I'm a, a conservative or, or a Republican, um, I'm not going to take cues from a liberal Democrat because you know, their views conflict with mine. But I might trust scientists more than I do a Democrat. And so when, when, um, when there's a consensus that something is true, um, often we have to find a, a, a group that people will take cues from. And that's, that's part of the research we've done and that we find that, that people are willing to, to you know, accept consensus um, about the types of things that are real and, and not real, um, at least for the, for the large majority. There's always going to be people that, that are never going to change their mind, of course. I think we'll probably come back to American politics in a minute. Sure. Possibly through the, this next subject that I want you to tackle, narcissism. You've written about narcissism. Right. And um, there is a, now a very famous narcissist in uh, the White House. Um, but what um, was interesting to you about narcissism? Yeah, this is a great question. And, and I get often I get asked about narcissism. And it really started because a colleague of mine has a, a, a very um, long background in the study of narcissism. And we started thinking about some new questions and ideas. And I got really interested in this topic. Um, but mostly from the perspective that narcissism um, as a personality trait, not so much as a clinical disorder, because there's a difference between um, narcissistic personality disorder and trade narcissism, or the extent to which people exhibit narcissistic traits. And so, again, we can think of this as a spectrum where some people have some narcissistic traits more so than others, which isn't always a bad thing. Um, but what interested me, particularly in terms of decision-making and social issues, is that narcissists tend to be uh, a little less pro-social. They tend to be more manipulative and exploit, uh, um, exploit interpersonal relationships for personal gain. And they have these traits that make them less pro-social um, unless there's something in it for the narcissist. So if they can make themselves look good, they're willing to, to do something for the, for the public good. But otherwise, uh, there, there's really no, no incentive because they're very low on empathy and, and these type of things. And so the study we did there was, the way it works in personality research is that we tend to give people this very long inventory of questions, so 30, 40 questions, and then we try to figure out, okay, well, how narcissistic is this person on a, on a continuum based on how they answer these questions? And there was this idea, well, what if we ask people a single question, just one question, would that work? And most people we talked to said, no, that's absolutely ridiculous. That goes against the whole idea of, you know, the, 
history of, of psychology and psychometrics and you know, complicated ways of, of doing this. And then someone had this interesting idea that, well, maybe it would work for a narcissist because if they're a true narcissist, they'd be proud to admit that they're a narcissist and they wouldn't shy away from it at all. And there was some research to back this up. And so we decided to go around and test how well does a single question work against you know, a longer battery of questions. And we found that, well, it doesn't tell you everything, but it does screen out um, people who are fairly high on, on narcissism from those who are fairly low on the scale, because most people wouldn't be willing to admit that they have some narcissistic traits or consider this, themselves narcissistic, but those people who presumably are true narcissists seem to have uh, no trouble admitting that they consider themselves as a narcissist because they think it's a good thing. Um, and so that was, uh, that was one study we did on the topic, the, the, the single-item narcissism uh, scale, which um, I thought was an interesting concept and it, it proved to have some desirable properties uh, against popular belief that you can't get much from asking people a single question. Back to fake news and um, the little bubble that we all live in now because of social media. You were talking about how it's possible to avoid any opposite opinions from the ones you currently hold because if we just stay on Twitter or we stay on Facebook and we just listen to and consume the views of our friends, they just back up what we already think. Is that going to change, do you think, the way that people's minds work over a long period? Are we going to become less open to other ideas? Yeah, it's a really fascinating question. I think a lot of people are concerned about this. And, and what you do see in these echo chambers um, is essentially that people are reinforcing their own worldviews and more selectively attend to news. And it is problematic because of the way that the social network structures are set up. So for example, you know, Facebook often uses targeted ads to, to try to you know, get to people. And so if, if the ads are about news that is specifically suited to the types of things you pay attention to, that's only going to amplify the, um, the echo chamber. And because most people now get their news online and specifically from Twitter and Facebook, I think there is some reason to be concerned about the fact that people are getting more ideological and, and, and polarized than, um, uh, than before. There's some interesting research that shows that when it comes to non-political issues, people aren't as polarized and the, the, the sort of social online media environment isn't as much of an echo chamber for people, uh, but it tends to be particularly true for political topics. And, you know, when we live in turbulent times uh, in terms of social political issues, I think that that is a problem. And the way that we think about how this works and affects people's decision making, I think, is an important one, because ultimately people do make ju form judgments and make decisions about what they hear from their friends and read online. And so I, I think it does have an influence on, uh, on people. Because on the one hand, you would probably think that we're better informed than ever before in history. You know, we can find out anything. We carry all human knowledge in a little box in our pocket called our smartphone. And yet, there seems to be, and we're going to talk American politics again, there seems to be a growth of ignorance, an almost willful ignorance. The, the world of, um, what did Kellyanne Conway call it, the, the alternate fact and I'm just wondering what you make of that development. Yeah, and this, there, there are varying perspectives on this issue of, of the post-truth uh, society, whether 
You know, some people feel that the internet has always been filled with misinformation, and since the onset of the internet, people were able to find, you know, views that conform to their own opinion. Um, you know, politicians have always been prone to spread propaganda, and so they wonder what is new about this. Um, but I think, as you said, I think what's crucial is that now, perhaps more than ever, people are susceptible um, to fake news. They seem to buy all sorts of conspiracy theories and fake news stories. It is affecting people. We do see this sort of hyper growth in the spread of, of fake news and, and, and these type of stories. And so I think it is um, a little different from what we've experienced uh, before. Maybe it will die down over time, but to the extent that you know people are paying attention to this. I think what the issue is that people are often on autopilot. So when we navigate the news online, uh, people are sort of in this what we call heuristic mode of information processing. So we browse, uh, we're sort of an autopilot, we're not thinking too deeply, and we share stuff over and over again until the, you know, we reach a certain social tipping point that something is big enough to go viral and then it captures everyone's attention. And how does this happen? Because people are perhaps, you know, semi-consciously consuming and spreading information that, you know, within a social system culminates into a larger trend. And part of the study we did was trying to see if we could nudge people out of this, you know, system one mode of information processing into being a bit more deliberative and uh, deliberative and vigilant and a bit more conscious about the types of information that they share. Because intervening and sort of slowing the transmission of fake news, I think, is a Especially what's what's key with these type of viral phenomena that people stop and think, oh wait, is this accurate? Should I be sharing this? Um, and so you know, giving people a warning label. Facebook is thinking of providing warning labels, and um, Google you know may alter the alg algorithms to try to downweigh unverified sources. And so I think technology can help with this, but certainly um, we have to pay attention to people's psychology in terms of how they interact with this new media environment. Now you're a psychologist. That means you study the human mind. Are we getting cleverer as the centuries go by? Another, another fundamental question. Uh, uh, I should have come uh, uh, prepared with uh, answers. Um, no, I think this is a, this is a great question. Um, and, and in fact, sometimes, you know, sometimes we have discussions and, and you know, people wonder, well, why aren't we doing the sort of you know, mind-boggling psychology experiments that we did in, in, the, in the 50s and the 60s, you know, the famous psychology experiments? Well, one answer is that because they were unethical, but the other is, you know, have we reached a frontier of, of knowledge? Um, you know, would Einstein still be inventing revolutionary theories in this day and age? And I think to some extent it's a fallacy, a psychological fallacy, to think that just because we've advanced, um, there's nothing new to, to invent. You know, I think, if, if, for example, if we think back to the, the age of Einstein, he didn't have Wikipedia, he didn't have Google, right? Uh, he, he didn't have any tools either. It was just him in a patent office coming up with ideas that were revolutionary for his time. And I think the, the same holds true today, that even though we're overloaded with information and um, you know, we shift in, in the, the types of things that we pay attention to, um, I'm not entirely sure or convinced that we've become more intelligent. And so it depends on how we define intelligence. So for example, we can say that um, instead of memorizing uh, tables and, and simple arithmetic, you know, everyone uses a calculator now. And so um, lots of research shows that that's actually good for your memory to, to try to do tables mentally and, and not use a calculator and all of that. But you know, some people say, well, we've moved on to the base level so much higher now. People's education starts at a higher level for math and other sciences. We don't need to use tables and mental arithmetic. We can use the calculator and then move on to 
more complicated and advanced phenomena. And so maybe we have, you know, um, reached a new level of, of knowledge and education and science that, that people are concerned with. But I think at the same time, we're also on the path to self-destruction. And so whether or not that increased intelligence is actually uh, being culminated into a force for, um, for good, I think, is questionable. And so that raises questions about how smart we really are as a group um, in terms of uh, our psychology. I think maybe at the individual level, there's good indicators that education has improved, that you know, poverty levels in certain parts of the world have improved, standards of living. You know, there's huge inequality, but you know, overall there's some indicators that you know, when it comes to equal rights, that some things have improved, for now at least. We'll see what happens with the American and then, uh, Trump administration. But um, um, I think ultimately, are we smart enough to pave a path for a sustainable future? I think that is a question that is, uh, that is uh, unanswered for now. Something a bit more prosaic now, Sandy. You've come recently to Cambridge from Princeton. I know you've studied elsewhere around the world. What do you make of Cambridge as a town to do some thinking in? I think it's a lovely town to do some thinking in. Now, now that I've been here, I can see why so many great minds emerged from this place, because it is, in fact, very serene, very green. It's, it's, there's loads of... Um, fantastic, smart people around all the time that allow you to have these um, fantastic and insightful conversations. So I can definitely see that it's an inspirational place and, and it's very well suited for academia, I think, uh, especially the college system and you know, types of conversations that you have with, uh, with fellows and dinners and the way it's organized. I think it's, uh, it's uniquely suited for um, Science, I would say. Uh, uh, I think it's a, it's a great place, and, and to some extent, maybe a privilege to, to be here. Interesting, you just said science. Is, is psychology a science? We like to think so. Um, we changed the name uh, a while back to um, psychological science because that's the, the term people like to use now to emphasize the, um, that we do use the scientific method. And so I actually think there's an interesting question because I think science is perhaps determined by whether or not a discipline uses the scientific method um, as propagated by certain you know, philosophers in the sense that you go out and get empirical data, test hypotheses, reach conclusions. It's not the only way to do science. Abstract um, mathematics doesn't necessarily use empirical data. We would consider math a science, right? Um, but when sociologists, uh, for example, you know, um, think of theories without data, there's more of a debate as to whether or not it, it is a science. So it's, it, I think it's interesting how people think about this, but certainly the majority of psychology uses the scientific method in that we do experiments, have hypotheses, test them, and try to reach causal conclusions about the nature of the, the human condition. There's also other forms of psychology that use different, um, different methods. For example, think of, 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 to some extent, clinical psych psychology or, or other forms of psychology that may use case studies or, or different types of investigations. Um, but overall, I think, as a, as a discipline, psychologists would consider themselves to be scientists. When you meet people and they say, what do you do, Sander? And you say, well, I'm a, I study the science of psychology. Uh, 
Do they, uh, are they a bit suspicious of you? Do they think you're sort of reading their mind or studying them in some way? Yeah, that, 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 that is a very common response. Um, and in fact, that, that is the first response that people tend to have, is that, oh, you know, I have to you know, be careful about what I say. Um, but then when they actually ask me what I do, it actually took me some time to, to clearly formulate you know, the, the, types of, the type of research that I do that resonates with, with people in the sense that it, it's clear um, what it is that I, that I study. And so mostly I tell people that I study human decision making, uh, how people form judgments and decisions about issues and how social norms affect us, because I think these are concepts that, that are relatively well known and it's clear for people how that, how to sort of, how that works. Um, and so that generally mitigates some of these suspicions that I have a crystal ball and I'm, <laughs> I'm predicting their next move. What are you thinking about Right now, you know, today, when, when we finish this interview, what will you go and do? I actually know exactly what I'll, what I'll be doing. We released a, a new study today that is about virality and viral phenomena and why things go viral and social tipping points. And, and one of the things that, that we found is that what's actually really interesting is that if you look at social networks and campaigns that, you know, try to get people to do nice things for other people, you see that it sort of emerges very quickly and it builds momentum and then it reaches this peak and then after it reaches the social tipping point, it, it, it almost dies down uh, immediately. And so this is what we call sort of the half-life of viral phenomena. It has a very short half-life. So things that go viral tend to um, build up very intensely and fast and then they sort of dissipate and we're trying to understand this this pattern and how that maps. Can you give me an example of that? Yeah, and so the example we use in the paper is the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge, which yeah. of course went a worldwide phenomenon, people were doing this, and I was fascinated by people pouring a bucket of ice over their, over their head and you know, not even mentioning ALS in, in a substantial amount of the videos. And so you see this pattern, for example, if you look at the Google searches for ALS or Wikipedia hits or donations, you see during the campaign there was, you know, there was sort of a lead-in moment and then it took off exponentially, there was a sort of hyper growth, um, then it peaked, um, and then at the end of the campaign, it, it, it almost, you know, dissipated entirely. And so one of the phrases we use is that a flame that uh, um, um, is twice as bright burns half as, uh, half as long. Uh, that's, that's, that's sort of the idea with, with viral phenomena. And the challenge is, well, if we, if we want to leverage those things for the, for the public interest, then we need to understand how, how, they, how they work. And so the embargo for that lifts at, at 4 p.m. And so I'll, I'll be doing some other interviews today on, uh, on that paper. Um, so that's, that's on the agenda for today. And it's interesting Googling you because, of course, because of your vaccine and, and, and that story, you, you've been in every newspaper, you've been on every website all over the world. You're, you've become, quote, unquote, viral, haven't you, yourself? <laughs> I suppose I suppose you could you could say that depending on you know the the scale of virality that they were talking about. One of the things that I value is is trying to make it clear also for the public how what we do actually informs their daily lives and how it's relevant to society. And so I do try to make a commitment to illustrate the the use and relevance of science to the public, particularly when it's in the public interest. And so this is partly why I try to engage with the media and the public whenever whenever I can, because I think it's it's important to, to to try to build that relationship. Well that's fantastic for us, isn't it? So, you know, thank you for being our Cambridge mind. My absolute pleasure. 
Our thanks to Dr. Sander van der Linden at Churchill College. I've been Trevor Dan. This has been a TDC production for Cambridge 105 Radio and we'll have another Cambridge Mind very soon. <laughs>